Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at Victorian theology and religion with Dr. Timothy Larson, professor of history and professor of Christian thought at Wheaton College. Dr. Larson, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. All right, so let's start with the question, and this can be more general, um, but also maybe more personal for you, too. Um, why study Victorian theology and religion? Yes, I, I love being a historian. And what being a historian does is it allows you to deal with issues that are very important to you, but in a bit of a refracted way. So that it's not like your family fight, your denomination's fight. It's a little distant, but yet it's the same issues. And what I found is the Victorian's deal with all of the issues that we're dealing with right now. Whatever you can think of that is a conflict in the church, in thinking as a Christian, there's a version of it that happened in the 19th century. And I've just found it very fruitful to think with them as a way of kind of working out what is the way to navigate these issues that often come up and create friction and controversy. All right. And um, could you give us a a brief religious uh, map of Great Britain, starting with the Reformation, just to give us a context leading up to the uh, 19th century. Sure. So um, there's, as you know, everywhere in the world before the Reformation, the standard way is that the king decides what the religion of a people is and tries to enforce that uh, through the military. So Henry VIII um, breaks away from the Church of Rome and creates the Church of England and makes that the official religion of the country. And official is not just, you know, a perk. It it is enforced by persecution. Uh, But there is enough of other forms of Protestant thought that he can't actually make it uniform. And also Roman Catholics carry on. So you have Roman Catholics and you have the Church of England, Anglicanism, And then especially in the 17th century, you get Presbyterians, which becomes the dominant um, form of Christianity in the Church of Scotland, just north of England. And you have Baptists and Congregationalists and Quakers. So that's like the main group going forward. There are uh, a bit of um, Unitarians. And then in the 18th century, the Methodist revival happens, and that becomes huge. It's actually a evangelical leavening of everything. So you have all of these big Methodist denominations. The most, um, the largest of them is the Wesleyan Methodist, but there are a whole um, series of other Methodist ones. But then the other ones I've talked about, Baptists, Congregationalists, they grow much larger because the evangelical revival also is like a kind of rain from heaven that really uh, they harvest uh, from as well. And so in the 19th century, you've got the Church of England on one side, and then these other groups are called Protestant descent. And they're Methodists, Baptists, Congregationalists would be the three big ones. And then you have a small Roman Catholic group and you have these smaller other groups I mentioned like Quakers and Unitarians. And as far as social context, um, political, uh, including philosophical, what can you say to give us a, a background? And also if you could talk a little bit about Queen Victoria herself and what sort of influence she had. 
Yeah. So um, a lot of things going on there. So I think for Americans, the hardest thing to grasp is that Britain is the most important country in the world in the 19th century. Uh, Americans know that they're the most important country now, and they tend to backdate that. Uh, but London is the largest city, not New York. The British military is the largest military, not the United States. The British economy is the largest economy, not the American economy. And Britain is running like a third of the world through its empire. It's just uh, unfathomable that this little island is controlling all of India, for example, and you know, Australia, Canada, parts of Africa. And so, you know, part of getting in the head of the Victorians is that sense of confidence that comes from success. Uh, these are these are these are people at the top of their game, um, and. In Christian thought, you know, it's a deeply Christian society, uh, but all the questions are at stake. What does it mean um, to be, to think Christianly and to be a faithful Christian in any area, in um, economics, in politics, uh, in the family life? Uh, And so it's, it's a very teeming discussion where all those things are in play. But I think what's part of what's interesting to me is Christian thought is definitely, uh, unavoidable in any conversation. What, 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 what is the Christian way of thinking about this is a key question, whatever you're thinking about. And could you say um, something about class structure during that time? Yeah. And also, what, are, what how would you, what are the dates for the Victorian period? Yes. So basically, uh, from the 1830s to the uh, end of the 19th century, uh, um, is the kind of typical, so really it's kind of used as a shorthand for the 19th century uh, when people say Victorian often. There, there's a sense in which class is immutable and fixed in a way that's very different from how Americans think today. So you are destined by your birth. And that is particularly unfair and resented by people who are born in the working classes and the lower classes, but actually have great gifts, whether intellectually or some kind of talent or whatever, there's a a very strong Victorian sense that you have to stay in your place. Um, There are even like the most kind of grumpy people or talk about being educated above your station, which is like you've learned too much for your lot in life because you're Mm -hmm. from the lower classes. Uh, There is a, an aristocratic class that takes care of its own enormously. Um, and therefore, even if you are not a person of great character or of great talent or of great intellect, you're still going to succeed because they're going to find a way to give you some job and to make sure that your life works out. And so that uh, rightly uh, builds resentment. Um, If I give a little commentary now, which is getting more political, but I'll try to be careful. One of the things that I see as a connection between then and now is that in the Victorian period, you could buy your way into professions. If you became an officer in the military, you could do it just by your uncle giving enough money. And of course, that created problems because you weren't necessarily very good at actual military strategy. And I worry about our culture today because so many professions depend on unpaid internships and a lot of kind of startup costs, which are still saying the kind of same kind of thing that unless you have family money to push you into this profession, 
your own talent, your own intellect, your own um, perseverance and drive might not be enough to make it. And I think that's a lesson from the Victorian uh, time that we need to think about. How can we get the best people doing the best jobs rather than having um, it could be a kind of closed shop for certain families? Hmm. And uh, Queen, Queen Victoria, what did she really have to do with this uh, whole Victorian age? She's uh, an interesting moment because evermore the monarchy is becoming a symbolic role rather than an actual rule. So we started out with Henry VIII. Henry VIII was essentially a dictator. He could put anybody to death he wanted to. He could make anything happen he wanted to. And over time, you are moving towards the elected office of the prime minister having the actual power of government and the sovereign being the head of state. And she has to navigate that change. Uh, and and it's uncertain. It's uncertain for everybody. When can she step in and say, no, I won't allow this? And when is it like, no, that's not your job. An elected government is the job. I think overall, um, she does that pretty well. Um, but especially at the early part of her reign, there are teething pains where her will, she has to be told, isn't always the final word on what's going to happen. And geographically, what are we talking about when we're talking about Victorian religion and theology? Does this include Scotland or are we just focused on England? Yes. So um, the Victorian period, uh, is, you know, in some ways it's used even wider. People will talk about a Victorian America, let alone Victorian Canada. Uh, so in that sense, it's just a chronological time period. But the Queen is sovereign over both Scotland and Wales and Ireland as well as England at this time period. And then, of course, we've talked about the empire. So eventually she's given the title Empress of India, which pleases her enormously. She loved um, the kind of uh, grandeur of that title, and it was deliberately given to flatter her, and it worked by a very cunning prime minister. Uh, so, but yes, certainly um, uh, she loved Scotland. She, would, she had a palace in Scotland and would go regularly and had a kind of... Um, what I want to say, a kind of deep personal connection with Scottish culture. All right. But um, in two out of your four books on Victorian religion, you have England in the title. So that's why I'm curious. Yes, that, that, that is the finitude of the scholar rather than the nature of the period. Uh, so putting England in the title is a full disclosure of what I was able to learn and effectively write about. Um, it's also very difficult because they're very different. Um, the Church of Scotland is a different kind of church, the Church of England. And so if you're just talking about Britain, um, it's hard to talk about this the, as one thing when two very different things are going on. And so it, it, so it kind of just saying this is about the English part of it is a way of saying keeping intellectual clarity and coherence in a very complicated world. Okay, so for our interview today, you're going to be talking from the perspective of the English, not both England and Scotland. I will answer any question you ask. I'm actually wearing my University of Edinburgh tie, um, and uh, I, can, I have two degrees from Scotland. I can do the Scottish conversation if you want, but they're not always the same thing. Right, right. Okay. Okay, good. And uh, so in one of your books, A People of One Book, The Bible and the Victorians, you wrote about a bunch of different uh, religious groups. So if you could go into more detail about the theology and practice, let's start with uh, Roman Catholics in terms of um, how they saw Scripture. Yes. So 
the thesis of that book was that the Bible was so important in Victorian culture that whatever your identity was, you were nevertheless immersed in Scripture and needed to um, navigate it and and you thought through it. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm trying to show, and I'm taking even the cases that are the least obvious for that and doing it. So Roman Catholics are a least obvious case because the Council of Trent after the Reformation said formally that tradition and scripture have equal value. And so it's not following a sola scriptura model for how to think about authority in the church. And nevertheless, the Victorian period was so committed to scripture that I show that often Catholics functionally make sola scriptura-like claims and they're deeply preoccupied with scripture. They're arguing even for very distinctive Catholic doctrines like transubstantiation. Uh, they know that the argument that will work is to try to make it an argument, and that's what they're trying to do. So that's what I was exposing in that chapter was this deeply um, scripture-inflected way of thinking and reasoning, even in traditions that are not committed to Sola Scriptura overall. All right. And how about the evangelical Anglicans? Yeah, so that was interesting because I, I chose, uh, I, they're all done through a case study figure. And um, uh, a commitment to the Bible is a mark of evangelical. So when you put evangelical in the title, it's not surprising that what you get is a deep commitment to scripture. But I used um, Josephine Butler, and she was a very important advocate against sex trafficking. Uh, and that's not at all um, an easy thing to do in the Victorian area where there was a huge taboo against mentioning sex at all. So it was the kind of issue where you had already kind of transgressed just by knowing that you knew about it. Uh, and particularly for a woman like her, her husband had been an Oxford um, don and was a very important Church of England minister. And women were supposed to be extremely naive about the realities of life. So for her to be on the circuit advocating and giving lectures and talking about the realities of what was called in white slavery, women being um, sex trafficked, uh, was often considered uh, an offense against propriety and respectability and her station in life. And she did that by honing very closely to scripture. Um, and again, as an evangelical, that was like not a strategy. That was her life. She read scripture every day and loved it. There's a beautiful thing where her eyesight is failing when she's old, but she finds a Bible with a big enough print that she can still read it. And she's just so overjoyed that the most important thing in her life can carry on. She can keep reading scripture. But she will use the phrases that Jesus used um, for prostitutes. For example, uh, at one point he says, a woman in the city who was a sinner. And that becomes a kind of euphemism for uh, a, a, a sex worker or a prostitute. And uh, her argument, which is irrefutable in the Victorian period, is if Jesus could say this, I can say this. So we can talk about this issue and we can use the phrases that the scripture uses to talk about these issues. And uh, you talk about Anglo-Catholics. So if you could define um, those people first and then how they relate to scripture. Yeah, so the, the, the Church of England is a kind of compromise between Catholic tendencies and Protestant tendencies. And it's always had people who are in one camp or the other and are trying to pull the Church of England towards that one identity. 
so Anglo-Catholics are people in the Church of England who want the Church of England to be as close as possible to Roman Catholicism in terms of especially liturgy and practice, but also doctrine. And so that is the group uh, that uses that term Anglo-Catholic. And once again, I try to show, even though uh, they are in so many ways trying to pull things in a more Roman Catholic direction, when it comes to scripture, they understand that in the Victorian period, if you are not arguing through scripture, you are not getting through to anybody. And so they're nevertheless deeply committed to scripture. And I'm saying that that is a mark of the times and the way to be effective in the 19th century. And you also write a chapter on the Friends, or commonly known as Quakers. Could you say more about them? Yeah. Again, once again, it's the same kind of thing. The, the Friends have two traditions. Um, uh, they were founded by an emphasis on the inner light. And that can be explained in a more evangelical direction or in a more liberal direction, to put it in more modern terms. Uh, the more um, evangelical direction is... We value scripture because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And through reading scripture, we too hear the words of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives. The more liberal direction is if the Holy Spirit inspired scripture, then the Holy Spirit can also inspire me independently of scripture. And therefore, you move away from a sola scriptural model and more of an independent, this is what I'm sensing and feeling um, kind of, of, of approach. By the 20th century, the Quakers had, in terms of majority, gone more in the liberal direction. Uh, the inner light had kind of functionally downplayed scripture and allowed for liberal changes in their way of being Quaker. Not everyone, uh, but the majority. But I was trying to recover the Victorian age in which actually the majority of Quakers were evangelical and their commitment to scripture was deep and it was much more of a sola scriptura kind of model. And you have Quakers who are every day reading scripture as guidance for their life, that when there are kind of sermon-like utterances in Quaker worship, they are overwhelmingly a collection of scriptures um, being strung together on a certain theme in order to uh, encourage people of what scripture says. And so, and a lot of scholars just, you know, they don't want to hear that. They, 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 they pretend like the most liberal Quakers are the standard Quakers, and I wanted to recover uh, the Bible-believing mm-hmm. Quakers. Yes, I've seen that, too. So, and interestingly, you write about um, atheists. You have a whole chapter for them. Yes. Yeah, so that's like the ultimate test case. Uh, and the culture is so committed to Scripture that you see it reflected in all kinds of ironic, surprising ways in atheists. Uh, so one of the figures is Charles Bradlaugh, who was the most important atheist a- advocate in the 19th century in Britain. Uh, he's working class, so he doesn't get um, any kind of higher education or even like high school education. He just gets a bit of what we would call elementary school. Nevertheless, he thinks what it means to be an atheist leader is that you need to learn Hebrew. <laughs> he's spending loads of time learning Hebrew. And it just like shows you how central the discourse is about the Bible. He thinks that the more he can talk about the Bible authoritatively, the better atheist leader he is. The chapter mm. is split between him and Annie Bazant, and she describes her move in life into becoming an atheist lecturer through Isaiah's call. 
I heard a voice that said, here I am, you know, who will go for me? And I said, here I am, send me. And so, again, she thinks that the only thing that can kind of bear the weight of how profound this moment in her life was to become an atheist lecturer is the profundity of scripture. Uh, and you see that over and over again in atheist writings, that even when they're trying to um, defy scripture, they they think through it and they count on its resonance to make sure that what they're saying sounds meaningful and important, even in their own mind. Fascinating. So uh, you wrote another book called Crisis of Doubt, Honest Faith in 19th Century England. So what was the crisis of doubt and what does that have to do with the first chapter in your book, which is crisis of faith? Yes. So crisis of faith is a hugely standard term in Victorian studies. It's about people losing their faith. They grew up in some kind of church context, but at some point in their life, often they're a writer or an artist or an intellectual. They begin to have doubts. So their faith goes into crisis and they become an agnostic or a skeptic or an orthodox in some ways or an unbeliever. So I just thought like a lot of that reflected what scholars were interested in. They were, they were obsessed with the loss of faith because they thought that it demonstrated where the world is supposed to go. They kind of imagine a post religion world or a post-Christian world, and they like think of these thinkers as like ahead of the curve. So it's like a mm. fantasy of the future that they're trying to work out. So I was kind of trying to deliberately um, tweak them uh, by creating this category crisis of doubt, which is people who were professional atheists in terms of that was their job often was to lecture for atheism, who then come to faith. And so the mm. crisis of doubt is they suddenly doubt isn't enough anymore in their lives. They've been trying to live on doubt and skepticism and unbelief, and they realize that they need meaning and they need God and they need the church and they need Christ and they need scripture. And those people often spend a whole nother part of their life, like decades, preaching the gospel, doing apologetics, writing books of Christian uh, thought, Christian devotion, um, and they get written out of the history because— they, you know, they're not fitting the archetype of you should be somebody who lost your faith, not gained faith. Um, often they're in the books as people who lost their faith for the early part of their life. And the fact that they came back to faith is not even mentioned. <laughs> Doesn't fit the narrative. Exactly. That is precisely the point of the book. Fascinating. Okay, so it sounds like you had a lot of differences with other scholars. You're kind of going against the grain with this book. Absolutely. And so could you um, give like, one key example? Um, you write about several individuals in the book. Yeah. Noteworthy. And, yeah. And, you know, and again, it's like I've said, part of it is um, these are not names people know, and they, they're not if people know because they deliberately, their stories got suppressed. Um, so Thomas Cooper is one that I love. He um, was an extremely intellectually gifted person who grew up in poverty, a uh, single parent mother. He was trained to be a shoemaker, but his mind is extraordinary. What he could learn is just unbelievable. And he becomes a Methodist lay preacher when he's young. 
but he hits um, mediocre Methodist supervisors who are intimidated by his intellectual ability, and they um, kind of challenge him and curtail him, and he becomes embittered, and that pushes him into secular, skeptical circles. Also, the deep poverty of the 1840s, when there's a huge famine in Britain, and poor people are starving, um, and he sees these complacent Christian aristocratic kind of people not caring and not helping, it pushes him into the secular movement. And he becomes uh, the most famous secular lecturer in London, preaching against Christianity. But after doing that for some years, he realizes that, you know, it's very easy to poke holes in somebody else's way of seeing the world, but it's very hard to build up a constructive view of the world, and he realizes he doesn't have one. He doesn't know the basis of morality. He doesn't know the meaning of life. And that leads him on a more humble journey back to Christianity. And wonderfully, he finds kind pastoral Christian ministers who are not going to just slap him down for asking questions and being smart, but are willing to walk with him on his journey. And he comes back to Orthodox Christian faith and then spends decades writing books, lecturing around the country, um, tirelessly preaching the gospel, doing apologetics, answering the very doubts and questions that he had taught when he was a secularist lecturer, giving the answer to them as a Christian. Um, yeah, he's, he's just an unbelievably inspiring figure for me. How about one more? Yeah, so uh, Joseph Barker is um, a similar kind of case. Um, he actually split a Methodist denomination on his way into unbelief. Uh, so it was, he, he, again, he went out in a pretty bitter blaze. And, and his bitterness, I think, takes longer to recover. Um, but when he comes back, uh, he comes back in great humility. They, both, uh, a lot of these figures also, also, it's interesting to me, come back as Baptists. And I think that they really needed the um, believer's baptism as a way of putting behind them their secularist and their atheist past. Um, and so um, he actually, uh, at his most kind of outcast, uh, went to Nebraska when Nebraska was nothing and bought some great real estate in Lincoln, which still has the Barker name <laughs> on it. Mm. Uh, I know a Presbyterian minister in Lincoln who's always telling me about these, this skyscraper that's there that still is the fruit of, of this man's life. Um, but again, plainly, they all felt the need to undo the damage they had done. And so they write and they preach and they lecture, and Barker does this um, with great self-sacrifice and care and effectiveness because they know how, especially working class people think, what are the things that most annoy you about the church? What are the arguments you've heard? It seem to be knocked down arguments why Christianity is not true. Well, they know it from the inside because they had actually believed it and taught it. And they are able to say, okay, I know how you think. Let me explain to you why Christianity is true, why you need to follow Christ. All right. Fascinating. And um, you wrote another book, um, Contested Christianity, the Political and Social Context of Victorian Theology. So you're talking about dissenters and free church and nonconformist evangelicals and how they practice their faith in regard to social realities. So there's two um, key um, stories you covered here. Can you first talk about the enfranchisement of women and then the siding with blacks 
against the governor in Jamaica. Yeah. If you could go into some detail, greater detail about those two, that'd be great. Thank you. Yeah. So, again, a big part of what I'm trying to do is overturn stereotypes about Christians in general, and especially, I think, maybe Victorian Christians. But I, but I want to say conservative Christians of whatever era, uh, people tend to think of them often, especially from the outside, as people who are very um, restrictive and judgmental and oppressive and are kind of always keeping people down. And that just doesn't work out often if you actually look at the details. So uh, the, the case study that I do for women um, is a congregation that became all women for a while. It had dwindled down. And a lot of men ha- came in and wanted to take away their endowment on the grounds that they weren't a church anymore. Mm-hmm. And it was litigated by, you know, again, in a, in a very Christian way, not, not in a court of law, but in a ministerial court. Lots of ministers from different denominations, especially Baptists, which they were, but also Congregationalists, came together and said, we're gonna, and they, the women said, we'll abide by the ministerial ruling of this body of ministers. And they said, no, what it means to be a member of a church in a Congregationalist or a Baptist context is that you're a voting member. And that's true of women as well as men. And therefore, these women are as much members of the church as men are members of the church. And therefore, their decision as lay people is just as valid. And so they backed the women. The women found another minister and the congregation rebuilt. And it went on for centuries after that uh, from from its low point. But what interests me is you have to go... Um at least 80 years into the future before the government is allowing women to vote. But Baptist churches and congregational churches are allowing women to vote all the way back to the 16th century at the very least because of their spiritual authority as people who are members of the body of Christ. And so this idea that, oh, the church is the key for suppressing women, it's like, well, the government's not letting you vote, but the church is letting you vote. <laughs> and therefore, in fact, when votes come for women in both Britain and America, a key constituency for that is the churches. The churches, if you, in surveys were done at the time, the churches are more pro-women voting than in society as a whole. And often um, a huge argument for votes for women that makes it successful as a movement is that women will bring a moral influence into politics because of their Christian identity. Fascinating. So um, that was taking place in a, a lot of different congregations then? That, yeah, it's that kind more of a... More... Absolutely. It's a kind of erased, forgotten thing, but it's a, you know, there are, there are congregations all across the country, and again, in America as well, who are letting women vote, uh, you know, half century and a lot more longer than that before... They can vote in their local um, election for their mayor or whatever. You know. All right. And can you set the stage in Jamaica and tell us the story there? Thank you. So it's a similar kind of thing. Um, secular scholars often particularly pick on missionaries. And there's a big, big tendency to make missionaries the villains in writing history and anthropology and sociology and politics and all kinds of fields. And missionaries are seen as oppressive and uh, destroying indigenous culture and um, agents of imperialism and colonialism. 
when actually the truth is often that missionaries know and love the people that they're serving and therefore are the biggest defenders of their rights against colonial powers, imperial powers, um, rapacious um, companies that are trying to come in and exploit them, all kinds of forces from the outside that don't care about those people. And the missionary is the person on the ground who understands those forces from the outside and is an advocate for those people. And so in Jamaica, uh, there was a very strong Baptist movement among Black Jamaicans and lots of white plantation owners hate the Christians, hate the missionaries, uh, because they see them as giving a voice and a dignity to the slave populations. So there was a pretty um, contained um, riot that happened in Jamaica, which created this unbelievable overreaction by the government, where they have hundreds of people uh, executed, people who are not in the area where the riot was, people who are part of the Jamaican Senate just because they were known to be spokespersons for Black people. And it's the missionaries who defend the Black population, who challenge the injustice of these summary executions. Um, there are even Baptist, white Baptist missionaries in Jamaica who are themselves executed as being a part of sedition and treason because mm -hmm. of their commitment to speaking for the black population. Uh, it's a very different story from the one that you read in the books, most mostly. So you're um, the only Christians there that were doing this were the actual missionaries. There weren't congregations of white people. It was just missionaries. Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful question. Um, um, you know, almost everybody else who's white in Jamaica has a huge economic interest in slavery. And so it's very hard for them to think morally and clearly because of their own vested interests. Uh, so you have people who are Christians who are there in the, in the island, but they're very aware that if slavery stops, uh, it will influence their profits. And what year was this? Yeah, th uh, this is in the 1840s. So as far as the abolitionists in England, uh, what um, movements or denominations did they tend to be part of? Yeah, it, it's spread across to their credit. Uh, so the Quakers are particularly known for being abolitionists. Uh, but some of the most influential abolitionists are from the Church of England. Uh, William Wilberforce would be a prime example. Hannah Moore, people in that circle are Anglicans. And the, and, and the very fact that they're part of the establishment, um, William Wilberforce was actually from a very wealthy and powerful family. And so he could work his way into the kind of key power structures of society and be a prophetic voice within them in a way that was different from people who didn't have access uh, but then uh, Baptists certainly are a very strong contingent. Um, John Wesley himself uh, was an abolitionist very early on in the 18th century when that was quite rare. And so the Methodists um, start out very strong abolitionists, although the temptations of the slave trade weaken that witness, especially in America over time. Uh, so there is, I, you, could, you could name any denomination and there are people who are abolitionists in it, but those are the highlights. 
And in your book, Friends of Religious Equality, Nonconformist Politics in Mid-Victorian England, uh, you talk more about uh, some, some similar issues, as in contested Christianity. Uh, what is the overall thrust of the book, and what's the nature of the politics and theology of nonconformists? So nonconformists are, again, those denominations who are outside the Church of England. So the Church of England is established by law. It has all kinds of legal advantages. The bishops sit in the House of Lords. Uh, there's funding and so on. So the nonconformists are the, the Baptists, Congregationalists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Quakers who are outside of that structure. And what I try to show is, again, they're often evangelicals as well. And, they're, and therefore, they're thought of as people who are oppressive, who go around trying to create laws to keep people from living their lives uh, and being free. And actually, what their theology taught them was that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that the way that the gospel spreads is not through coercion, it's not through force, it is through the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, they were actually very committed uh, to creating a free society in which people could choose to worship as they wished, even if that worship was not what they thought was right and doctrinally true. Nevertheless, my task, if you're doctrinally wrong, is to appeal to you, um, to provide convincing arguments, to befriend you and persuade you. It's not to force you to pretend like you believe something you don't believe, which had been the old model. All right. And uh, one of the chapters uh, you wrote was uh, called Religious Equality. Could you go into some more depth about what you cover there? Yes. Yeah, so that was like a new radicalism for them. Uh, and it's a deliberate slogan because the old slogan was religious tolerance. And what religious tolerance meant was there's a correct way of being a Christian in this country. That's the established church. You are wrong, and we're going to tolerate you even though you're wrong. We might curtail you in some ways and penalize you in some ways, but we're not going to wipe you out. Uh, religious equality meant, no, the government's job is not to try to make you into the right kind of person. Uh, that has to be the work of the Holy Spirit, and therefore you have to be free to live your life, to pursue your job, your profession, to build um, buildings for your congregation rather than being zoned out, all those kind of things. You know, uh, nonconformists couldn't even bury people because uh, there was a monopoly on the cemeteries from the Church of England, all kinds of ways in which they were just harassed. And they're like, no, even not only for us. I'm a Baptist, they might say, but even if you're Jewish, even if you're an unbeliever, you should not have the society through the government trying to coerce you into pretending like you believe something you don't believe. You should have uh, a freedom to pursue who you are. Okay, and also in your book, it sounds like you, you also go against the grain of some uh, scholarship on the topic and go against some uh, stereotypes, stereotypical views of the period. Um, what, is, what is different about your approach on these issues? Yeah, again, if you if you asked a scholar, tell me about an evangelical Victorian, they would say, oh, it's somebody who's going around trying to coerce other people to live like them. You know, you can't do this. You can't do that. We have all these rules and we're going to make you follow them. 
And actually, so as we we're talking earlier, you know, atheists are a very tiny group in Victorian England. They do not get their rights because of political power. They get their rights because evangelical Christians say it's totally wrong in my way of thinking that you're an atheist. Nevertheless, I don't believe that we should persecute you for your beliefs. And therefore, I want you to be free to pursue your life with dignity and freedom before the law, even though I believe that what what you think is not true. And therefore, atheists get their rights not because atheists advocate for them, but because evangelical Christians advocate for them. (laughs) And that's not a story that people tell you. When they think about evangelical Victorians, they don't think about them helping other people gain their rights. They think about them oppressing people and trying to manipulate and control their lives. All right. That's an important story to tell then. And... uh... How about the um, the descendants of the Puritans? Um, can you just go over real brief the origin of the Puritans and what we have left over at this point in England? Sure. So, as I talked earlier about how the Church of England has more of a Catholic-looking wing and more of a Protestant-looking wing, and in especially the 17th century, the Puritans are a movement within the Church of England try to purify the Church of England by making it more Protestant. Uh, they, they especially wanted to be more Reformed in line with what John Calvin taught, what the Church of Scotland teaches. Some of them end up becoming separatists, which means they give up on the Church of England changing and leave the Church of England to join other denominations or create other denominations. So a lot of what we've talked about as dissenters or nonconformists are the descendants of them. Baptists, Congregationalists, Presbyterians are often Puritans who gave up on purifying the Church of England and left to follow their way of uh, being faithful to God's word in a denominational structure that allowed for what they believed. So that carries on um, down the centuries as we're talking about. So to give a, a very concrete example, the most famous preacher of the 19th century is Charles Spurgeon. He has an extraordinary ministry in London, huge um huge um, building built for him, Metropolitan Tabernacle. You have to remember it's a time before um, there are any um, microphones, you know, and so he's got to build a building, but you have to be able to be able to speak through your voice in a way that everybody can hear you. Um, He is unquestionably the most um, successful in terms of reaching uh, the largest number of people, preacher of the 19th century. Uh, his sermons are printed verbatim in newspapers and sold around the world. People in Australia, people in Russia are reading his weekly sermon. It's extraordinary. Anyway, um, Spurgeon is a Baptist, uh, but he consciously sees himself as an inheritor of the Puritan tradition. The Puritans are his favorite theologians. He reads deeply in their works, and he sees himself as continuing their legacy in the 19th century, and there are others like him. All right. And how about the disestablishment movement? What was it and how were various church groups involved? So the disestablishment movement, again, argues that it's not the business of the state to try to prop up a particular church, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, and therefore it's not the coercion of the state that should make the church um, succeed, if you put it that way. That view is held uh, by varying degrees 
among various uh, nonconformists, but they coalesce to make a movement that's very politically powerful to try to disestablish the Church of England. And again, what I want to emphasize in my work is people see that as just politics and identity politics. You're a nonconformist. You hate uh, the established church. But I want to argue that it's a theological movement, that it's a it's an understanding of how God has meant the church to be in the world. And I think that's very relevant for us today because we're living in a post-Christendom world. We're living in a world in which the worldly secular incentives for being a Christian have become less and less. And therefore the church has to know what the church is and why it exists. And it has to disciple people based on the spiritual reality of redemption through Christ and not this is a good way to get on in life. If you're a part of our church, you'll do well in business, you'll do well in politics, you can climb this ladder, which was the old Christendom model that the state is going to help you if you pick the right denomination to rise and rise. And I think it's a truer and a more faithful theological view, and certainly the nonconformist did, to say that that's a distraction from true discipleship. True discipleship has got to be about counting the costs and saying, even if this is not going to help me in worldly terms, I'm going to follow Christ, whatever it takes. So what was the uh, disestablishment movement able to accomplish um, as the, I really, could you go over like the power yes. that the Anglicans have held over the years from, yeah. and how, what, what is it like today? Yeah. So the 19th century disestablishment movement is enormously successful at mo- removing uh, what were called the nonconformist disabilities, the practical ways in which you were hindered from getting on in life because you weren't a part of the Church of England. It doesn't actually get disestablishment itself. So there's still is a Church of England, which is established uh, to this day, uh, but the disabilities are gone. So to give some examples, um, you could not get a university education in the first third of the 19th century, of actually the first half of the 19th century, uh, because in order there were only uh, three universities in England, uh, Oxford, Cambridge, and Durham, and they all required that you sign the 39 articles of the Church of England in order to either uh, enroll or to graduate. So you couldn't get a degree. Um, you couldn't often become a mayor or a member of parliament. Um, there were all kinds of civic positions that were you had to um, communicate, receive communion from the Church of England once a year to qualify to hold a civic office which again, uh, nonconformist thought was just the most travesty of spirituality that you would turn communion into some kind of political farce to to qualify for office. Uh, As I mentioned, you couldn't get uh, buried in the cemeteries because the cemeteries were the church land. Um, You couldn't register your child's birth legally because the only registration was being baptized in the Church of England. Uh, Over and over again, you ways that you've moved around in society, you found that if you were a member of the Church of England, you got blocked. Something didn't happen that, that should happen just for normal life. Um, marriages, the same kind of thing. Your marriage uh, uh, to be legal needed to happen in the Church of England. Uh, go on and on. Now. And what is the, um, the status of the movement today to further disestablish 
the Church of England. Yeah, and there isn't a strong movement today. And like I say, that is because the Church of England has become very symbolic, like just like the queen is no longer actually ruling the country, but is a symbolic head of state. So the Church of England is a symbolic established church, uh, but there are no restrictions on if you're not a member of the Church of England, how it can affect your life. And so that, uh, that status, uh, the, the movement has less energy because there isn't a practical impact anymore. All right. And could you um, say pick one character out of the Victorian period and talk in some details um, one of the more profound thinkers of that time, theological thinkers? Yeah, well, I, I don't know if this will count or not, uh, but I, the last book I did was on John Stuart Mill. And he's interesting because he's the most famous and influential philosopher of Victorian England. Uh, especially with utilitarianism and the idea of the harm principle. So he's he's still in philosophical circles and in political circles, a key figure today. And he's famous for being secular, being skeptical. And yet what you find, if you look deeply into his life, is a much bigger imprint of Christian thought and the church than is the stories that get told. He would regularly go to church when he was in a town. He would often, he'd write in his letters that he, you know, uh, would like run to make it to the church service in time. Uh, when he arrived in a new town, uh, his uh, works are filled with quoting scripture to prove a point. It's not just quoting it rhetorically. It's quoting it because it's true. Um, he's, eulogizes Jesus Christ in the most extraordinary ways, in ways that his own disciples have often found embarrassing. Uh, so that, to me, he, he, is an example of the way in which Christian thought was so permeating throughout the 19th century that even a figure that people think of as secular um, has a lot more Christian thought going on in him than you would imagine. And what tradition was he part of? Yeah, so Church of England, nominally, um, but... Um, he is, you know, again, considered officially to be skeptical, and yet um, skepticism meant something different then because you're continually in dialogue with the Christian faith. All right. And how about the um, John Henry Newman story? That's um, fascinating. Yeah. What happened with him? Newman was raised um, evangelical. And I think that evangelicalism has a particular vulnerability in people who are good, devout children, because evangelicalism loves the narrative of somebody who's lived a dramatically sinful life and has a conversion experience as an adult. And often that's confusing for children who are raised in the evangelical faith because they haven't had this dramatic past away from. And so um, one response to that is to turn to more high church versions of Christianity, which are more about continuity rather than discontinuity. So it's more about growing in grace than it is about that kind of dramatic conversion experience. So he becomes a high church um, Anglican and tries to be, you know, in the Anglo-Catholic tradition, is an influential figure in moving the, trying to move the Church of England towards more of a Catholic direction. And eventually he becomes a Roman Catholic himself. And he also is a brilliant, brilliant thinker. And so he works on apologetics. 
and provide some pretty powerful and compelling contributions to why uh, being a person of faith is not irrational. Uh, the Grammar of Belief is a key book of his, which really shows why thinking as a believer is not turning your back on intellect or reason. Um, from to go from the Church of England, can you say more detail about that, why he eventually turned to Rome? Yeah, so, it, I mean, that's a classic vulnerability point for Anglo-Catholics. The more that you say the Church of England should be like Catholicism, you open up the question, why would you want to be like it when you could just be it, you know? And so so at some point, you know, you, you have to ask, well, if, if my goal is to make the Church of England as Catholic as possible, maybe I should just be a Catholic. Um, and um, he um, takes many agonizing years to make that decision, uh, but it is uh, the decision he ultimately comes to. And then a huge amount of people, uh, Anglican priests, followed him, right? And all, and sometimes pursue him, so, so that he gets them interested in Catholic-like ways of thinking, and they become Catholics before he does. Uh, so yeah, there's kind of a joke that he was the last person in England to know that he was a Catholic. You know that, that everybody else could tell which direction he was going in, but it took him a long time to see it himself and really face up who he was becoming. And how did the um, Anglican leaders uh, react to, to all that? It was very difficult because, I mean, you know, John Henry Newman is literally a saint now. Uh, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church has canonized him, and he was a saintly figure. And so he was beloved. He was beloved for his holiness. He was beloved for his intellect. And he was a leader. And so it was definitely a rattling moment when somebody who is one of the most famous uh, Church of England leaders becomes a Catholic. It obviously unsettles people and uh, creates the possibility that people are going to follow his example, which did happen, as you said. But did they do anything about it in terms of like, how can we shore things up to, so this is less likely to happen in the future? Yes, it, it, it was difficult. I mean, you, you, you have... You know, the Protestant wing of the Church of England is sees it as just an object lesson. This is why we need to reinforce our Protestant identity and talk about Protestant convictions. And so you have that happening. Uh, it's hard for the Anglo-Catholic wing because they don't like to emphasize what makes them different, different from the Roman Catholic Church. But they need to in order to not uh, to, to kind of um, establish why you should stay in the Church of England. Uh, so... It's a bewildering time for them. A few, a few people try to explain the differences, uh, but but the differences embarrass them, and they tend to kind of try to smother them over when they can sometimes as well. All right. And uh, what are some other key issues that uh, Victorian scholars such as yourself disagree on, debate on? What's um, What's controversial still? Yeah, I... I... I spent a lot of my career trying to overturn an assumption that's still widespread among Victorian scholars that it's a secularizing time. That what's happening is the church and Christian thought are kind of eroding and going away. Um, I see the 19th century actually as an enormously Christian high point in lots of ways. Uh, and part of that is not having 
an accurate way or did, they did not think about comparing things in accurate ways. So, for example, there was a, a survey of uh, church attendance that happened in 1851. And ministers were enormously al alarmed at the number of people who weren't going to church. And they preached all these sermons about how horrible this was. Well, it turns out that probably that was an all-time high in church attendance, that, that, that statistic for that um, a survey. So they're not comparing with anything else. In fact, if you look at the medieval period, which nobody doubts is a Christian period in terms of general thought, church attendance was far lower than in the Victorian period. Mm. Uh, so they are imagining that, that, that things are falling off, but they're actually at a high point. So I'm trying to get at. And Victorian scholars take them at their word. Um, it's also um, every um, time you try to rally people for a cause, you try to show them the danger. You know, if you want to be an environmentalist, you tell people about what can damage the environment. So what Christian ministers do is they say the things that are damaging can damage the faith or are damaging the faith, but they're not comparative statements. They're just warnings. Of let's let's draw in our neighbors. Let's recommit ourselves to Christ. Uh, but people read them as comparative statements. Somehow mm. 50 years earlier, the church was much stronger and now it's weaker. And that turns out not to be true. Uh, but a lot of Victorian scholars still kind of imagine it's true and want it to be true in some ways. So I'm trying to say, no, it's not an age of secularization. Um, it's actually an age of uh, an unusually high level of Christian commitment. All right. And so um, it's, it sounds like the, the majority of Victorian scholars that write on religion are not Christian. Is that your experience? Yes, it is. And, and and that creates all kinds of unfortunate byproducts because they often use, they don't understand devotional life and Christianity. They don't understand the sources that they're reading. They tend to just read for some other agenda. And so uh, they're not appreciating what really people are saying. Uh, a lot of times they just skip over the boring parts, you know, and so when when a person's commenting on scripture, oftentimes people will write an entire book about scripture, and a person will write a biography, a full biography of this person, and not even read like one of only four or five books they wrote because it's about scripture and therefore boring. Where I think that book actually tells you more about who that person is on the inside than almost anything else you can read, uh, but they're so dismissive of the Christian inner life that they don't even want to engage with it. Right. All right, and one final question. So what does uh, Victorian Christianity and theology have to do um, with the life and mission of the church today? I think that there are just so many um, warnings and possibilities about what it means to be the church today. I think the church lives or dies by discipleship. If we cannot take the time and the effort to form people to be followers of Jesus Christ, then we're in big, big trouble. What I admire in Victorians is that commitment to teach children scripture, to form them in the faith, to teach them how to pray, to teach them the importance of going to church. And I think that we live in a moment when we live lives that are so entertainment-focused and so indisciplined in lots of ways that it's very hard 
to build those kind of habits into people's lives. And yet, if you think about it very deeply, you'll know that there is no future for a healthy, vibrant Christian movement in the country if people are not picking up spiritual disciplines and becoming faithful followers of Jesus Christ. All right. And uh, could you say a more about the what tools for discipleship then we can get from the Victorians? Yeah, again, I, I, I'll focus first and foremost on devotional reading of Scripture. I think that if you're not willing to make a, an encounter with Scripture part of what it means for you to follow Christ, you are deeply deficient. And, and I worry even churches are not doing that sometimes. The churches are neglecting preaching out of the Old Testament, are not actually teaching people how to encounter Scripture and understand it. The discipleship is, let me show you as a mature Christian how I read this text, what I see when I read this chapter. And we do that through preaching. We do that through um, mentoring. And the expectation of the Victorians was it doesn't matter if you're a young, if you're poor, if you haven't been to high school, you can still read Scripture and hear God's Word. And that expectation has eroded greatly. And I think it's um, foundational to a mature Christian movement. All right. Good words. Well, I'm Dennis Metzler, and you've been listening to The Charge. We've been discussing Victorian theology and Christianity with Dr. Timothy Larson, a professor at Wheaton College. Dr. Larson, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been wonderful. Thank you much.